Hello everyone, welcome to the Mike Armstrong podcast show. Uh, this afternoon I'm joined uh, by Tahir Ashraf, who is a barrister um, and a politician and a, a political broadcaster and an actor. And uh, we met networking in, uh, I think, uh, Crawley um, uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, it's great, great to have you on my podcast. How are you doing today, uh, uh, Tahir, UK? I'm very well, thank you, Michael. It's good to be here. Okay, brilliant. And uh, I usually start my podcast with asking people uh, how the uh, the lockdown has been for them. So how's it been for you? Well, before I dive into that, I just want to make one minor correction. I'm not a politician. Um, I do, though, comment on political matters, so I'm not quite a politician per se. Uh, other than that, insofar as lockdown is concerned, well, I suppose uh, you might say lockdown for me has been the same as everyone. But over the last month or so, the lockdown for everyone else has been very different to the lockdown that many of us in the country have been practicing. So because this podcast is being done via Zoom, I'm actually using a virtual background which shows that I might actually be on the beach. On the contrary, despite the despite some of the beautiful weather that we have experienced here uh, in the UK, I haven't been to any beach, even though I live relatively close, uh, a drive to Brighton, Littlehampton and that uh, area, I haven't gone out there. And part of the reason why I haven't gone out there is because, now, even though you haven't asked for my view, I'm about to give it, um, my view is, that people should still be exercising a great deal of caution and not getting out and about too much unnecessarily mixing because COVID-19 is a very serious thing and we need to treat it with the seriousness that it deserves. I say that, I say that because in my radio show, I interview people who have who have been COVID sufferers themselves, people who have recovered. And one person with whom I spoke to, out of all the people that I've spoken to over the last couple of months, one person said they virtually recovered within one week. And that person is also a psychiatrist, a doctor herself, relatively young, relatively fit and healthy, unlike me carrying a bit of uh, uh, a spare tire, as it were. That's a different story altogether. Yeah, well, um, I use the uh, on the beach uh, background when I'm doing Zooms quite a lot, and I've not been anywhere near the beach either. I've pretty much um, I work from home anyway, so mm -hmm. the lockdown for me hasn't been too much of a change. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I've pretty much stayed in, kept myself sensible. You know, I do a bit of caring, so I've got to go shopping for someone every now and then, and sure. myself. But other than that, you know, I tend to uh, stay in, stay working. But what what the lockdown has done for me is given me a bit more time to do things like exercise, which I don't always have the time to do because I'm busy building a business and yes, and doing all that. And also, I started my podcast. I started YouTubing more. I started being Excellent. more creative. So uh, yeah, have you? Uh, found a bit of extra time and, and, and started some more things in your schedule? Well, as you know, I'm a barrister in my day job. Uh, and what with courts closing for face-to-face -face hearings and so on, that has seen a direct impact in work reduction. And because people are not getting out and about and everyone is worried about finances, people are not 
pouring money into that side. So uh, I've, seen a, I've seen a direct impact on that side. Conversely, it has been good. There is a silver lining in the sense that my acting work and obviously the artistic and creative side, uh, I'm doing more and more on that side. So I'm writing more on that side. Uh, I've done, in fact, I did a Shakespeare acting gig as well uh, during lockdown online. So in fact, I'll, I'll share that with you um, after this as well. It, it is on, on YouTube as well. So I'll share that with you. It's, the show must go online yeah. so people can find on that. I played uh, Shakespeare's Holofernes. Um, and this is a pedant who is somebody who's very particular with his words and to describe one word he'll he'll churn out two or three different synonyms for the same word you know so he'll say the earth the land the terror and so on and so forth so it's just wow it was amazing it's pretty good fun yeah good there's a lot, a lot of um unique words and and meanings etc you've got to learn with shakespeare isn't it so it's a bit, exactly yes yeah, it's, uh, it's quite intense or can be you know some of their plays can be quite intense yes not everyone's cup of tea but actually, it's still good fun because you could, it just shows, you know, how language has evolved over the last, uh, I was going to say a few hundred years, but look at how language has evolved over the last 10 years, 10 to 15 years. I mean, you know, we didn't have emojis. No. We no. didn't have yeah. half the text speak that we now have. Yes, uh, we're, we're moving similar to, uh, I've seen some people talk about this on the telly recently, it's, it's a bit like going back to hieroglyphic, uh, hieroglyphics. Yes. <laughs> Emojis, you know. Exactly. Yes, uh, it's uh, where, where language seems to end up in, in pictures eventually. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, yes. well, obviously you've talked a little bit about uh, being a barrister, etc. And obviously having a creative side as well. What, tell us a little bit about the, the background to, to yourself and your life and, and what led you to, to going into those fields. So that's a very interesting one because, um, as you know, someone from the ethnic minority background. So for me, um, I always enjoyed singing and a bit of acting and, you know, playing the Joker and so on around the house and among family gatherings and so on. And uh, as a 16 year old, back in the days when, uh, yeah, there was no such thing as Facebook or YouTube or Google for that matter. <laughs> uh, and uh, back in those days, I used to tour with a couple of groups around the country, you know, from Manchester to Luton and so on, uh, attending weddings. And I was a backing singer. And so then I would also not just be a backing singer, but occasionally I would also perform an entire song myself. Uh, so that continued. And whenever there were festivals around our town, uh, I would sing and dance with those groups and bands as well. I then sat down and had a conversation with my dad and said, well, look, dad, I really want to become a singer. And it was a case of, well, actually, it's not a proper job, though, is it? So the arts were never deemed to be a proper job for someone like me. Uh, eventually, there was an opening in the BBC, BBC Radio Lancashire, and uh, City and Guilds was the qualification, but CSB Media, they were providing training for radio journalism and public administration there. So I, I must have been around 18 when I got to that. And obviously, you know, because I was pointed in that direction, 
So yes, sir, that's, it was the done thing. So you're the obedient son. You went and uh, I went and did journalism back in the day then based at BBC Radio Lancashire. And from that, um, that's where the Asian network used to air from, the BBC Asian network used to air from. And I ended up being the, um, the acting producer for uh, some of the shows there. And uh, part of my responsibilities, uh, part, well, so one responsibility in particular was that the news bulletin would have to come in. My responsibility was to translate as best as I could that news bulletin into Urdu and Punjabi and give it to the presenters so that they could read it out on time and properly and so on. And of course, back in the 90s, we had issues with Russia, Chechnya, and so on and so forth, and Rwanda. But I had no idea what the words for Russia and China and Chechnya and so on and so forth were in those native languages because you know, we just didn't. But that come into that, regular use, were they? <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. I mean, I wasn't about to have a conversation with my father about Russia or, or my mother about you know Russia in in Punjabi or Urdu. So because of that, because of that being thrown into the deep end to do some translation and interpreting work, I started doing voluntary interpreting work for people in the community and so on and so forth on legal matters, on family law, on immigration law and so on. That became the springboard for me to get involved in a career in law. So my life could have turned out very, very differently. Yes. And uh, so that essentially, because of that interpreting, it was a case of, well, you're handling yourself in the interpreting room very well. You'll come across professional, you're talking about it. So it was a case of, right, you can do this. So I thought, oh, why not? Okay, I'll give it a shot. I mean, all right, fair enough. Go on then. <laughs> Yeah, very opportunist, very opportunist and a very sliding doors moment, that really, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, because, uh, I mean, the few, uh, in my teenage years, I was very much into youth work and I used to run the coffee bar in the local youth centre. And, of course, I, I would mentor other, other youth, other children from the area, from the entire town. So people who were like dropouts from school. I say dropouts, but actually those who were expelled. You know, so back in the day, being expelled was seen as a badge of honor. And, uh, and so my thought process was, hang on, well, this one particular uh, lad who was being thought of as a, a ruffian, as it were, and everyone was like, well, we don't want to talk to him. I thought, well, it doesn't matter. I'm going to have a one-to-one -one with him. I'll approach and I'll have a conversation because otherwise there's a reputation. So mentoring people like that to stay off the streets to get on and do something productive, get an education, uh, was quite a crucial role that the youth centre had played. So from my perspective, it was a case of, I know, I'll go into further education, higher education, should I do law or should I do youth work? I really wanted to do youth work, but as it so happened, I ended up doing law and um, getting a degree and. Um, you know, lo and behold, becoming a barrister and practicing as a barrister. Yeah. And what area do you specialize in, uh, you know, as a barrister? 
So I deal with uh, essentially commercial and property law type matters. So where, where somebody might have a commercial idea uh, or a business idea starting from scratch, right the way through to drafting contracts, advising on contracts, advising on disputes, partnership issues, shareholder agreements, and so on and so forth. So one of the things I have a tendency to advocate people who are thinking of a business idea or thinking of a business is, look, let's have a conversation. Let's start off and think about what it is you want to do, why it is you want to do it, who do you want to do it with? And ultimately, where do you see yourself in five years time and 10 years time or 15 years time? Because unless you start to have these conversations now, in other words, preparation, you're likely to fail. So if you plan for success, there's a greater chance you'll succeed. If you think, do you know what, I'm just going to have a go at this for a year or six months and see how it goes, that means your heart's not quite in it. And if your heart isn't in something, how are you going to give it 100%? How are you going to pull yourself up through the doldrums, because there are going to be ups and downs, maybe even more downs than ups. How are you going to cope in that set of circumstances? So that's why I like to have those conversations at the beginning, because then there are no surprises. Equally, and this is a crucial one, equally, people have a tendency to, for want of a better expression, get in bed with others whom they might not necessarily know about or how they are. So that's why it's crucial, no matter what size of business you're thinking of getting into, it might be, do you know what, let's buy a property together and do it up and so on and so forth, and then sell it. If you haven't got an agreement, bare bones written down, chances are there are going to be disputes. So I'm, I'm the sort of person who, even though I'm trained as a barrister, somebody who stands up to argue and fight your case in court, I'm much happier preventing disputes yeah, yeah. than their arising disputes. Because the way I see it, if I can help my clients prevent disputes, get rid of disputes and so on, they're happy to pay my fees. Yeah, yeah they're saving money, aren't they? So your, 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 your service becomes uh, much better value for them because you know, they can cover your costs and still save against what they would have been paying out if the worst was to happen. Exactly. And never mind the, the money saving, think about the time saving and, of course, the heartache and the, and the stress and the headache associated with, with going to court and having to deal with court cases and that sort of stuff. Because it, is, it, it can be very, very personable and very, well, very emotional, rather, is perhaps the right word. It can be very emotional and very emotionally challenging and draining. So that's why I'm far more of a, you know, someone who is an advocate for, um, well, dispute resolution. So I do the commercial side of things, business contracts, business disputes, intellectual property, film and artistic contracts and music contracts and agreements and so on. And then on the other side, I also do property related disputes and property problems and issues. So, for example, trusts. So a property might be, for example, in, you know, you might put the property in a, in a friend's name or something, but actually it's yours or you've paid a, you know, 10, 15% or 5%, whatever percent deposit towards it. 
and there was an agreement that you'd get X amount, but you haven't been given anything and so on. So there are all sorts of uh, types of issues and circumstances that arise from that as well. So I deal with that side of things as well. Okay, that's good. That's good. So, but obviously that's a bit on the back burner at the moment, which is allowing you to um, to be a bit more creative and do some of your creative stuff. But you know, um, I, I said that you were a politician, or you're involved in politics uh, in some way. Tell us a little bit about uh, about that, how you got involved, what you're doing at the moment, and what your plans are there. So the politics side of things is, is an interesting one because as barristers, the, originally the training is that, look, you know, you've got to try and be as apolitical as possible. Whereas I have found myself being a couch politician over the last few years. In other words, screaming at the television and screaming, uh, thinking, you know, what, what, what are you saying, you politician? You know, what the hell are you saying? You should be presenting things in a better way and communicating things better. Look, you know, if you need to say sorry, why don't you just hold your hands up and say sorry? It's only human and so on. Whereas I just feel that the politicians of the day, regardless of whichever party, are very, very much out of touch with the ordinary person. I mean, you might hear, your listeners might hear that I'm a barrister and I'm relatively well-spoken. But what they don't know in the background is that my dad and his dad used to work in the cotton industry as weavers and so on in the British cotton sector over in Lancashire. And so I come from a working class background and I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my hand, in my mouth and so on and so forth. But I just feel that with that background, I can connect with the ordinary person far better than some of our traditional politicians that we see, who unfortunately are just so out of touch to what the mentality, what the thought process, what the challenges of the ordinary person are today. So my thought process is I want to make a change. And I've had conversations with you know, fellow judges, barristers, politicians, and so on. And the advice was, for you to be able to make a difference in policy and laws and regulations, you've got to start at local level. So what does that mean for me? Simple. Well, you, you've got to stand and become involved at local party level for you to be able to influence change in or around your own area. And one day, if you're hoping for parliament, then that's the real way you will be able to have make some kind of a contribution to the legislative legislation and laws and changes to legislation and so on that come out of parliament. But the way to be able to get to do that is you start at local level. So starting at local level, who knows, one day perhaps I might even uh, become a member of parliament. Okay, that's the ambition. So, that's the ambition is to get into... Uh... Well, ambition, ambition is an interesting word because in some quarters people think, oh, he's very ambitious, isn't he? As in overly ambitious and not something that's achievable and attainable. And ambitious in the traditional sense. And actually, you know, you should have ambition. You should aspire to do better. But actually, it's less of an ambition for me. It's more of an analysis and a realisation that that, to my mind, is the need of the day. Yeah. 
Okay, yeah, I think um, I think you know back in the eighties, you know nineties, when you had um, politicians that had come from that working background and had real sort of um, causes that they believed in, etc. You know, politicians were much better then. I, I think, mm. but um, I, I agree with you that a lot of politicians these days they're that they're far removed from from the real issues of the day, and you know, even they say, oh, you know, um, I speak to my constituents, etc., and this is what they're telling me, and you're like, well, who are they speaking to then? Because that's not the issues of the day, you know. Sometimes they they, they phrase, you know, the issues to to be the ones they're concerned about, you know? and I just think, um, yeah, too many. Uh, what I would say, career politicians. Career yeah. politicians, yeah, that's they right. They politics and they, what they're learning is the history of politics. And so they're not innovating and creating and coming up with new stuff and solving real life problems. They're just learning about other people's solutions to old problems. Exactly right. I mean, I'm at the other, uh, other side of 40 now. And the way I see it, uh, obviously I'm not a career politician. And, but actually I've been through what I would call the university of life. Yes. And, and that is significant training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I myself, I'm not a massive fan of the system of politics. Um, I believe that um, it, the country should be run like a company and therefore mm-hmm. you shouldn't just vote one person in who puts all his cronies and all his mates in the different jobs, but you should vote for each job because then you're actually yeah. somebody who's qualified and is going to get you know, the mass, the mass uh, democracy, the mass of people suggest that they're the right candidate for the job. So mm. I, I think, you know, we have too many politicians who they go around all the top jobs. They move from one job to another to a job and reshuffles and all of this. And I yes. think, like, what sort of leadership is that? You know, like when in a company would you put somebody in charge of finance, then IT, then sales, then marketing and just keep moving him around somewhere to see if he can do good? Like, you know, you wouldn't, it wouldn't make no sense. So to me, it's just a frustration, like, you know, so I just, the way I look at it is the system doesn't work. It doesn't matter who you vote in. Mm. Pretty much they're all clones of each other anyway. And, and, and you know, the GDPR is, is only so much as a country. So there's only so many ways we can spend it. So we spend it slightly a bit to the left or slightly a bit to the right or slightly in the middle. But it's the mm-hmm. same things happen all of the time. And for mm-hmm. me, there's nothing, no room for creativity, innovation and, and stuff like that. Saying that, I but, think but you see, but you see, there's a misconception there, Michael. There's there's a there's a there's a misconception there, uh, and that misconception is that everyone is the same. So imagine me five years down the line, for argument's sake, I become a member of parliament, and I'm you know I'm I'm a member of parliament, and um, would I want somebody to say that they're all the same? I wouldn't, because oh. I know that I'm different. Yeah. And I'm not saying they're all the same. But I want to, yeah, I, I would want to bring that. I mean, a few years ago, we had the likes of Nick Clegg, for example, um, chomping at the bit and saying, well, as it were, um, I want to change parliamentary system and I want to change the way in which everything is done. Politics needs to change and so on and so forth. Well, what did he want to change? He wanted to change something completely different. I, uh, representation, proportional rep- proportional representation and so on and so forth what does that mean to you and me what does that mean to the ordinary person who's a voter who, who doesn't really want to get much involved or doesn't really uh, believe in what is happening because of the way in which the sound bites are continuously coming out so we we are not convinced we are not convinced with the sound bites we see the system is broken 
But where we see the cracks, the standard politicians of the day, those that rule the roost, don't see those cracks or just shove them under the carpet. Yeah, well, they don't want to see them. So too much money to, 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 to really look into it in too much detail, I, I think. I think if people, more people like yourself who've actually had careers up to the age of 40 or something, maybe 50, and then go went into politics with the knowledge and the um, experience they've gained on the front lines, on the streets, in the offices, in the banks, in the courts, all of those sort of things. If those people were in our politics, then they would have the masses of people wanting to get involved and listening to their um, solutions and all of that. But there's too many people who literally, they've not had no life experience. They've been knocking doors from 18 to 40. They got nothing to add anywhere. And I think the real educated people of the world who realize that, just think, what's the point? What's the, what's the point? You know, what is the point of putting somebody in charge for this, that, and the other who have no experience at all to do it? You wouldn't, like I say, you wouldn't do it in a, in a company. You wouldn't stick somebody mm. in like, you know, just been in the mailroom all his life in, in charge of the finance job at some point because yeah. he happened to be the mailroom in with someone else in the mailroom who went on and did something good. And so yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that there is a lot to be said about um, politics and what it needs to be from where it is now because, strictly speaking, it is public service. And only over the last couple of years, I've been thinking about this in a great deal of detail because. I think about who Sajid Javid, for example, is and was. And if you look at his background, of course, we all know that before this current chancellor, Sajid Javid was the chancellor. In fact, this current chancellor, Rishi Sunak, he was Sajid Javid's number two. I th and I think they both done a decent job. I think well, and, uh, indeed. And Sajid Javid was a former banker. Yeah. And uh, not only was he a former banker, he was with the uh, Deutsche Bank, I think, if I'm not mistaken, on a salary of three million pounds a year because he's made a ton of money for the bank as well. Yeah. And someone like that, when they give up a job in finance yeah. and eventually start running the country's economy and the country's purse strings, as it were, yeah. it makes you think, actually, that's phenomenal. But then they're taking a massive, and I was reading up about this, and apparently on a 70-odd grand or whatever the salary is for a, a member of parliament, that amounted to a 99% pay cut for someone like Sajid Javid. And I just thought, you know, that's actually quite phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and that's the problem. The problem is, is, is you can't get the top, top, top quality people to... Um, run the country because they're in companies that pay way more money but you can't pay that sort of money to politicians because it's ridiculous because it's public purposes and there's other ways to spend the money so, yes. so i think this is why the system is it doesn't work necessarily because i think what they should probably should do is these top expert in top companies should maybe be brought in to consult or to educate or to, on certain policies that are important for the country you know so that mm -hmm. you're using their expertise but you're not you know, yeah. you don't have to pay if you like for that expertise as a country. You know, so I think I think it's just if you was to set up a system that 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 would get the best for the country, it wouldn't be anything like what it is now. And, and well, we're paying a hundred grand for someone like Dominic Cumming or ninety grand or whatever it is. Yeah, and I note that you've got your uh, sunglasses on, and I, I just wonder whether. Uh, you know whether Dominic Cummings had his sunglasses on when he went out to test his eyesight.
Yeah, but, but you know the thing is with things like that as well. You know, again, you know, we have a lot of witch hunts in, in 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 politics and public life, and sometimes quite rightly so. But I think sometimes people just jump on the back of of everything, and I think you know what he done. He did something wrong, rather than just own it up, which I think most politicians should learn to do, just own it and apologise mm. for it. He then tried to sort of, you know, make up a more enhanced story, if you like. Yeah. And I think uh, people should just, but but ultimately, it's a mad situation. There's lots of things going on. He had this little sick child. I think if he just apologised and just, you know, it wouldn't have just gone on forever. Then he just said, "Listen, I was wrong. You know, I made up the rules. Exactly. I panicked and whatever. And you know, I think people would understand that because it's not a normal situation. You know, mm. but trying to sort of bluff your way through it and whatever, you know, things like that. It's 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 not the best way to do things. And, and that's the problem. Is that you know. It's authenticity. It's, it's being authentic, and that's what I say. Real people, exactly. real experiences can be authentic, and the real people will understand that. I think politicians are taught not to be authentic. They're taught to be a bit of everything for everyone, and and, and because of that, you don't understand necessarily because they're they're trying to be populist rather than trying to be who they are. Which is annoying, though, isn't it? Because if that is the training that you've got to be aloof and not connect see the thing is if let's let's look at let's look across the globe let's go from one end of the world to the other let's look at new zealand for example yeah uh justine uh, i can't remember her uh, her full name justine arden i think it it is um new zealand's female prime minister has handled uh, terrorism issues brilliantly she has handled covid-19 issues brilliantly uh, and, and obviously the terrorism was islamophobic and racist and so on and uh, so she has handled that very well then if you look at canada justin trudeau again he's been someone who has apologized for canada's history and so on and so forth and um, and he's been seen on camera emotional and crying about various things and so on authentic that's authentic so people like you and I, we think that actually, do you know what? So what if a man is crying? Because the man is human. It makes them human. It makes them connect. It makes them authentic. What's all this nonsense and palaver that you can't face the facts or address the issues and so on, which I just think it's just bizarre. Yeah, well, it's question time sometimes. If someone asks them a question and they cannot give you the answer, and they'll try 17 different ways of saying the same thing to get out of giving an answer to what they actually believe. And if they actually just honestly looked at somebody and said, This is what I believe, I think they, they would have, I think they would be much more popular. So by being popular, yeah, greater trying, credibility, trying to not upset somebody, I think they're becoming less popular. You know, hmm. you, know you see people sometimes, you just think like, how can you say the same thing 17 times, 18 times, 19 times? You just say, and they're just, the, the, the journalists have got them on the ropes and they're asking the question and they will exactly. not answer that, you know? And, and just, they know they're on the ropes. They know they're on the ropes. Even though they know they're on the ropes, they still will persist with the same damn answer. Makes you want to just, you know, oh my God, pull your hair out. <laughs> but as proper leaders, you know, they find a, they, they would have dealt with situations like that all the time. I've been in sales for 30 years, right? If somebody put me under a situation, there's not a situation in the world I could not get out of. And that's mm. the way I look at some people. And I think, why are these people, these are the people we're supposed to be having to run our country and they can't even 
answer a question or, or not make themselves stu look stupid by not answering but, a question. And, but it's less, see the thing is, being in sales, it's less about getting out of a situation, it's more about facing the situation. Yeah, I'm, I'm just and with it in a way that's credible. Yeah. And that's part and parcel of the problem, I think, that credibility has been a real issue. And uh, make no mistake, uh, I won't beat about the bush. And to my mind, you haven't quite asked me, but I know where this is all heading, so I'm going to preempt you on this. So as far as I'm concerned, the whole Dominic Cummings, Cummings and Goings fiasco is exactly that. It's a fiasco. And in my mind, I've no doubt that this has been a political move and political maneuvering to, you know what, we'll just ease the lockdown because he didn't follow it. And you know what, he's the, he's the government advisor and so on and so forth. So we're just going to let this slide when people are now just getting out and about because they are frustrated. You can't think about the frustration of people. You've got to think about the health of people and the life being yeah. frustrated. Oh my God, I can't go out is different to, oh my God, I can't breathe. I'm going to die. Yeah. Priorities, people. Priorities. Yeah. Cut through the BS. Tell it as it is. Get on with life. And you know what? Many places in the world are facing a second spike. Yeah, yeah. What's your thoughts on that? Do you think uh, one's coming? I think we're already in it. Yeah, well, uh, my strategy was what I thought was going to happen. We were going to be in for three months, out for three months, in for three months, out for three months until sort of probably begin the next year. That's what I thought would have happened, um, mm -hmm. and and it may it may well happen. Um, or or I think what would make better sense, I think, would be um, for them to have these uh, regional uh, quarantines, if you like, as and when. I think there's a big spike in Leicester at the moment or something. So mm -hmm. maybe have. You know strategies where you sort of you know put certain areas under lockdown and restrictions for a while to, to to dampen the fire if you like well you know and then if something spread somewhere else you work on that area and um, i personally myself i don't know what your thoughts would have been on this i personally I, i'm not sure i would have done a lockdown i think i would have done a under 50s carry on as normal and over 50s lockdown myself because i think there's a bigger economic, mental health and other situation which is going to be man-made and man-caused, which actually could be the big virus. In, in, in my thought process, we've, we've stopped one virus and spread another. See, uh, no, I, I disagree with that and I'll tell you why. To my mind, we have gone into lockdown at least, at the very least, two weeks too late. I'll explain why. If we look at the anecdotal evidence, if you want to call it that, the anecdotal information during your WhatsApp, I mean, uh, the WhatsApp groups and so on. Thanks. Uh, during the WhatsApp groups that you all have and so on. So information comes from there that um, this was in China around October-ish and certainly in China around November and it became public knowledge around December. If we say that those, that anecdotal information, if we say that that's all not true, if we say, do you know what, let's just say for argument's sake that it was around October, November, it was around, 
let's say it was definitely around in November, uh, in December time. January, the world finds out the existence of this. Think. This is in existence. This is a problem. Let's close borders now. Let's halt flights before this is spread across the globe. Yeah. Because by January time, people have found out that deaths are occurring. People are just popping their clogs within a very, very short space of time. The problem I found is that lots of people were treating this like yet another flu because it's to do with the breathing and so on. It's not quite like that. People have deteriorated and died within a space of seven days yeah. and so on. That's how serious it has been. And sometimes it has been within a space of three to five days. And it's unfortunate, but I know of people like that. I know of people who have suffered from that, and I know of, of people who have died from it, and I have been in touch with people who have uh, suffered from it and come out the other end. One of the people who I know of is his 10-month-old daughter. 10-month-old daughter got it. His wife got it. He got it. Right? Uh, but we assume... I assume he got it because he was traveling on a train and he'd had someone from Italy. You know, they were on, and this is London trains, trains heading for London uh, from Gatwick. And he saw that he was sat there with that person close by to them. And on their luggage, he had, they had uh, Italian luggage tags. And then when I was doing my radio shows, um, certainly in January, we discovered that actually there was a woman who came as Italy was going into lockdown around January, February time. Someone travelled from Italy into the UK, into London, and then travelled on public transport because there was no information on this yeah. at London airports or anything along those lines. So that has then caused a further spread, or has it caused a further spread? Even if we don't know for 100% certain that it did or it didn't, that it did, we can certainly uh, postulate a theory. Uh, we can certainly hypothesize that actually, do you know what? It, it, it may have contributed to this. Yeah, well, I think, you so, know, with the Chapman Fest, I think in hindsight, there's a lot of things we could have done differently. I know some entrepreneurs who, who, who spotted the, the, the China and, and the, the Eastern side of this. And actually have made some real big changes in their business prior to our lockdown and shutdown so some people were really quick on their toes and and reacted if you like in their businesses and maybe yes. you know again if we had leaders who were studying the world and were quick thinking and, and were entrepreneurial by nature and spirit we may have got to doing some things a bit quicker you know yes. uh, but hindsight tells you that it's difficult to understand at the time because it was all major things to, to decisions to make at that time and, and so you know but michael but mike is that not just an excuse well you know yeah. is that not just an excuse that we were in the thick of it and therefore we didn't know 
well, you surely know, it think, takes a bold leader to take action. Yeah, well, you know, I think I think maybe a lack of a, a leadership. I, I personally think again, politicians tend to have a, a bit of a lack of leadership. I know we've spoken on that subject before, um, and I think um, you know sometimes uh, some of the decisions being made by leadership at the moment as well are not clear and, and precise, and so people get frustrated because um, because they're, they're told something and they're not quite sure what they're told. You know, the mm -hmm. they're told is has got uh, if buts and maybes and possibilities and it's you know it's like yeah it's uh, leaving a lot to the person who is being told to to his mind to decide what they're being told yeah. whereas leadership is about giving clear directions to people exactly people exactly so so i've just googled the uh, new zealand prime minister's name and it's not justine it's jacinda jacinda arden jacinda yeah. arden so if you think of someone like that i mean she's she took action, yeah. swift action. You know, yeah. so why couldn't why couldn't Britain? Why is it that we have ended up with one of the worst losses of life, one of the worst death counts in the modern world, in the developed world, right. as a developed nation? Come on. Yeah, but, you know, so so again, uh, I'm someone on a Libra, and I, I like to be fair. And I think um, I think you know there is definitely a lack of leadership in in, in some of uh, the the consequences of, of some of these things. You know, yeah. Just like um, with the IT fiasco of the NHS a long time ago, and then with the yes, Act, yes, yes. I think that that may may have been under Labour. Yeah, there's definitely some some lack sure, of. Sure. It's, just, it's just because to me it doesn't matter who's in charge. The politicians are the same. You know what I mean? Mm. From all the parties, that you know, I say I say as a as a as a general rule, they tend to be inexperienced, lacking life experience. So they tend to be the same in that. They have different views sure. and different ways yes. about it. Yes. But they tend to yes. be the same, um, the same, you know, cut from the same cloth, the same sort of ideologies and the same experiences in school and that sort of thing. And I, but I think, I think also as well, though, you know, London, for example, top 10 power city, it's different than New Zealand, you know what I mean? And I think we had so many more open places where people were coming back from and traveling to and that sort of thing. So I think it's, a, it's, it's not compared in like for like compared to say New Zealand with London and, and the UK, mm -hmm. they're different. And, 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 sure. you know, and I accept that. I accept that because in London, uh, I mean, I, I've been in the South for around 12 years now. And it just makes you think that actually, do you know what, if you, if you look at London, the way in which it is built and the way in which the economy is built and it continues to be, you have a system in London where there are flats and flats and tower blocks 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 and, uh, and skyscrapers. And you look at the underground, it's congested, 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 congested. But that is by design. Yeah. That is by design. And now there is talk of HS2 and so on and so forth. And obviously the Northern powerhouse and the north of the country, Wales and so on and so forth. The rest of the country being connected, the north of the country being connected with the south. Right. So jobs going, job creation up in the north and so on and so forth. Were we not thinking of that before? The prime example I can give you, no. the prime example I can give you is, relate, is found in our legislation. Look at the Road Traffic Act, for example, 1988. That's when that came out. And if you look at our motorways and rules and regulations associated with speeds and so on, 
which came out back in the 60s, well, back in certainly the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, yeah, that's when the speed limits and all that was set in the 70s. Though. Exactly. And if you think about car technology then, and car technology now, let's park technology to one side. Let's look at one aspect, brakes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back then, the brakes would jam. You had skidding and slipping and so on and so forth. And we've had the anti-lock braking systems in operation since the mid to late 80s. Yeah. and definitely the 90s so and then now now you've got completely different systems in operation that are far more advanced and better yet the speed limits are the same exactly which i find crazy because again um this is what where i said you know there seems to be a lack of creativity and thought and innovation and stuff there's even yep. a lack of just looking at what exists because you know how can rules set in the 70s be relevant in 2020, 50 years ago, you know, in the yes. fastest speed of development and technology innovation. Exactly. How can they? Exactly. And look at roads. Things? Look at roads, for example. Look at roads. If yeah. we, uh, roads and rail, if we look at, uh, and I've studied this at Oxford, if we look at our rail and road infrastructure, it's a joke. Yeah. If you look at our GDP as a nation, and then you compare other nations and their GDP on a par with ours, look at where they are and look at where we are on a map. Yeah. So our comparison is with those who have similar GDP to ours and therefore our development and their development, you look at their road and rail, in other words, their transport infrastructure compared with ours. Believe you me, Mike, we, yeah. we look like a third world country. Oh, yeah, definitely. When you look at like, places like Singapore and Hong Kong and Japan and, you know, France with their rail and that sort of thing, you know, we are a long way behind, you know, in some of these. We are. And it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Our airports aren't even connected. If I want to go from Gatwick to Heathrow by car, it's going to take me easily a minimum of 50 minutes if if the roads are 100 percent clear if the speed is at around 70 miles an hour and there are no issues at all whatsoever can i get there in that time frame around the m25 i don't think so that's no. just simply not realistic at all can no, i get there by part train part in a you know, with this cardiff airport this cardiff airport just outside of cardiff and there's no connectivity to the airport to the city you know, there's a bus that goes every now and then. <laughs> you know, but that's to say, you know, connectivity in this country is terrible. And I think a, a lot of, uh, again, a, a lot of the problem is with, with the country, I think, is a lot of decisions have been made in London, in Wales, in Cardiff, you know, although mostly still in London, the big decisions. Uh, but then the rest of them, you know, they don't really, they, they concentrate on growing those areas and uh, they don't really worry about too much about the, the rest of the country you know if if, if they'd have um, invested in the northern powerhouses a long time ago 
you know, and the connectivity around from the north to the south and around the north and around the south even, you know, then, then yeah, you know, it's like they built a long time, the, the M4, uh, the M4 motorway and the, and the trains, etc. Obviously, that's the bit that I'm very familiar with because it connects, you know, me to the rest of um, the south, if you like. Mm-hmm. You know, those sort of links that were done a long, long time ago should exist everywhere, but... The, it's, it's just in in that M4 corridor link, like you know those. Yes. Really good, yeah. That's a really good link, a train link, a ro- road link, etc. That goes through, you know, London, Bristol, Cardiff, Swansea, four big cities, if you like, and and, and Reading, and lots of other cities along Swindon, and you know, lots of other cities along the way. But exactly. There's not much other places like that where there's a rail and a road system. You know that goes you know north to south on the east of the country, north to south on the west of the country. You know, uh, in the middle, across the north. You know, across the south. It, it just doesn't happen. There's no connectivity with. So they they did it once for for one major route and then just forgot about the rest of the country. Exactly, and I think that that pe- the politicians, town planners, and people need to think outside the box. Yeah. They very seriously need to think outside the box. I mean, why do the trains have to sit on the ground? 30 years ago, we heard of the maglev in Japan, which is a magnetic train. Yeah. 30 years ago, we heard of that. Come on. This is ridiculous. Yeah, we're in the 21st century. We're in 2020, for goodness sake. And, you know, why do they need to be on the ground now? I mean, one of the things I'm going to say to you is this. Why can't a train run in the middle of the motorway lanes? Exactly. Exactly. Just all the way along. Right the way through. Right the way through. Yeah. You don't need to stop and change fields and houses and so on and so forth. Just get it done. Are you telling me, are you telling me that as the human race, and you're on top of Earth at the moment, so as a human race, are you telling me that we are not? advanced enough to be able to get that technology in operation exactly you know i don't believe it if the trains mirrored the the roads you know the infrastructure is already there for the you know the services and you know so the services could be the stations you know there's already infrastructure in place. exactly exactly it takes people with a bit of you know brain power and a bit of experience of life and a bit of innovation and creativity to come up with these you know? Well, you know what I'll be pushing towards if I become a politician. <laughs> well, you know, it sounds like you need to be. It sounds like you'd make a, a good one, like you know, you, you, because I think you know you have got that um, creative side as well, you know, um, but also that experience, that real people, you know, dealing with real situations on an everyday basis. So, you know, to me, I think you, you know, good luck with that. I think um, I definitely would like more people like yourself who. Who, who have a bit of a brain and a bit of experience to get involved in politics. And then I'd probably be a lot more enthused by, by the whole situation than, than where I am at the moment, which is I love getting involved in the debates and stuff. I just don't like backing anybody. To me, you know, it's like, well, show me that you're worth backing and I'll back you. But otherwise, you know, I'll just watch. Well, hopefully you can back me. So there we are. Yes, there we are. Well, I, you know, I, I might do that too one day, you know, you never know. But uh, yeah, and uh, and obviously I've been on your podcast. Uh, it was a podcast that turned, was, was turning at the time to a radio. So how's that going? It's doing well. It's still ongoing. The radio is still ongoing. Yeah, good. Good. Yeah. So how I still record. In fact, I've finished recording for that. My show is on tomorrow, uh, drive time, 5 till 7 p.m. 
Five till 7pm, yeah. And what's, uh, how do they tune in or how do they find it? So it's revivefm.co.uk. Uh, that's where it uh, can be found now, revivefm.co.uk. Uh, it's, incidentally, I'll be speaking to you about uh, a podcast as well, which I'm about to think about. Well, I've been thinking about launching a podcast of my own, so I'm about to launch that as well. So, Okay, well, I've actually done some uh, podcast uh, advice, uh, strategy, and a bit of training recently with some, some other people. Because uh, I nice. started my podcast in April, but I have, um, I've had something like 1,600 downloads uh, since April. So, um, and Fantastic. Still- and, and I'm promoting it quite quite a lot and, and getting out there. I've had lots of uh, guests, entrepreneurs on my show, including like All Blacks players and ex-international rugby coaches and lots mm-hmm. of top entrepreneurs. So, you know, I'm getting some good people on there. I've got yourself good. now, you know, a future uh, a future uh, leader. Parliamentarian. <laughs> very kind, very kind. But, uh, but yes, uh, so yes, I'm enjoying it and I'm always willing to go on other people's podcasts and other people's shows as well, mm. as I did with yourself the other day. Um, we had an interesting debate uh, at a networking event, and uh, which led me to coming onto your podcast on a Sunday. I quite enjoyed that and I'm always willing to, to, to voice my opinion because uh, I have one and I, I, I get involved in as much things as I can in order to be able to make that opinion educated and not just based on fantasy or one point you know, one, one bit of information or one bit of uh, data which i've seen a lot of people tend to hold on to they hold on their one thing and then mm. and then they just tackle and fight the other side who've got an opposing view and they don't look at the detail of those views and, and actually take in enough information in my opinion to actually make their judgments really i think you know i think that's what happened with things like I think it's happening with the race rights, happening with coronavirus, it's happened with Brexit before that. And people people take one thing or two things and then just oppose the opposite people who have an opposite view and they don't yes. often take enough information in to actually understand why they're making their de- decision. Yes, they come to an informed view. Yeah. An informed view. So I watch like Q, uh, Question Time quite a lot in order to be able to, you know, get everybody's point of view and make your own judgment based on that, you know. And, exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah, so I think uh, I wish more people did that, but not everyone's got time to do that, I think, uh, or, or the inclination. But uh, thanks for coming on to my podcast. My pleasure. For uh, being a great guest. And uh, I look forward to uh, uh, speaking to, uh, to you again sometime soon on some other platform. Same here. Okay, nothing else left for me to say now other than have a great day. I know I will. And thanks very much for and listening. And you, Michael. Cheers. Bye for Bye-bye. now.